0: Welcome, it's the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, episode 88, Monday, January 29th, 2024. Thank you for joining us. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats, insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, welcome. It's great to be here. And Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager.
1: Hey guys, thank you very much everyone who's tuning in to listen to the podcast. We really appreciate you listening. Thankful for all those that have passed us along to others. Shared with family and friends, and you know we like we say every week we really enjoy doing these. Uh, we like that you guys enjoy them as well too. So thank you so much. And Brian, why don't you kick us off with what's going on this week?
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, this week maybe you can listen to this podcast while you're driving with your windows down. It seems like we're going to be having a little bit of a warm up, uh, but uh, it's actually going to be a very exciting week as far as the economic data. There was a dearth of it last week; not a lot. There was GDP numbers, some personal consumption numbers, but this week we get the F-O-M-C, the Federal Open Market Committee. They are releasing their policy statement at 1 o'clock Central Time on Wednesday. And then the other big data release is really going to be Friday morning with non-farm payrolls. There's all sorts of other data releases as well. We're also in the midst of earnings season. But I would just say
0: Wednesday and Friday are going to be the big days. Dearth, you say. GDP was not a big story last week. It seemed to be, at least in in the media. You know, so GDP
2: is such an interesting report because... Because it comes out kind of late and it's also oftentimes subject to massive revisions. The GDP number was big news and so I guess when I'm saying dearth I mean as far as there just weren't a lot of data releases not that it wasn't that important you know I love all of my data releases just like I love all of my dogs and uh, the GDP numbers I think caught a lot of people a little off sides because it was really strong in terms of growth and really good in terms of the inflation numbers. And that was a real welcome improvement where we had 3.3% annualized growth with GDP, but yet inflation pretty clearly, at least temporarily, trending towards the Fed's 2% target.
1: Yeah, I think continuing on that strength, you know, positive GDP to the extent that we continue to have, I think it's pretty surprising because for the last year plus, uh, you know, the the number of people that were calling for recessions and negative GDP just really have not seen that come through. So continued growth there, especially at levels of of three plus percent, is is really awesome to see. From a market standpoint, I think the continuation there is that you know we had such a sell off in 2022 with an anticipation of that recession that was coming that you know again we have not seen, And, and the market really rallied in. 2023 coming off a low base, you know, really from a price standpoint within the sectors, things that ha- that did really well last year continued in January to do really well as well, too. You think things like technology, communication really led the way, which were some of the big winners um, in the previous year. Communication is kind of an odd sector because uh, it's got some real techie names to it. Mm-hmm. Things like NVIDIA, Meta, which is Facebook. Alphabet, which was Google before, but also old companies like Verizon and some mm-hmm. of the cell phone companies and some of that old media is there as well, too. But they really led the market over the course of January. Tech, led by NVIDIA, AMD, all the chip-making companies did extremely well during the month. Those were all over 5% or 6% from a sector standpoint. Um, and even financials continue to rally that we started to see last summer after a huge sell-off with the regional banking issues we have. That whole sector got brought down, mm-hmm. but that they rallied pretty strong that second half of the year in through January as well, too, which probably would surprise a lot of people that we're in the environment we are right now and banks and insurance companies, you know, more specifically have done so well from a market perspective.
2: Yeah. And in terms of their earnings, also, it's been sort of across the board. Uh, Earnings season started off with the big banks reporting, looked pretty good. It's more of a technology company. It's, I think, in financials, but like Discover Card Mm -hmm. and Visa and uh, companies like that, it's more for payments and they're seeing slightly higher default rates, lower volumes as well. And unfortunately, their stock prices kind of paid the price for that. It's interesting as far as from the economic perspective, the strengths that we've seen, and then the market strength as well. Reminds me, Danny, you're probably going to appreciate this. Maybe this was before your time though. You remember Spiro Agnew, right? yes, the, I the, do. the yes. vice president, his famous phrase about the nattering nabobs of negativism? <laughs> yes. Right, it's a great one, and I think that kind of explains why the markets did so well in 2023. And really, starting off 2024, there still is that negativism that idea that, well, a recession is inevitable but maybe postponed until the third quarter or the fourth quarter. We're going to have some temporary strength, and that's what we've been seeing, but. It hasn't been all sunshine and happiness. There's also been some weakness as well. And uh, what kind of weakness have we seen in the markets?
1: You know, the other side of that coin for sure is even some of those techie names that are in the discretionary side. And one of the things that we've talked a about, lot about over the years is looking at equal weight versus market cap weighted indices. And, and you can see that also from a sector standpoint too, because Tesla, which is about 15% of the discretionary sector, is down 25% this year already. I mean, and that's really pulled that down. So you would normally think discretionary tech communication, they all kind of move in tandem with each other. But because of that huge weighting in Tesla and some of the issues that they've seen so far this year, that has pulled that sector down um, over 4 percent, real estate down over 4 percent already from a sector standpoint. But that's such an interesting area of the market. You know, it's so rate dependent, Mm -hmm. especially when you're looking at individual mortgages, the price of the house and how those work together that, you know, we've seen such an issue in the real estate market as a whole for people that are looking to go out and buy a house. Especially for those that are first time home buyers, really got hit quite a bit over the last year or two. And that's certainly a weakness there, both in the real life part of the economy, but also the market too.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that we've noticed as far as related to housing, you know, new home sales have done very well, but it's the existing home sales, mm-hmm. just that lack of inventory. People have the golden handcuffs as far as these very low rates. And that is likely to change once. It becomes clear that the Federal Reserve is going to start cutting rates, and if we then see mortgage rates start trending lower, some people do get a little bit more accepting of the idea that maybe they can take on a higher rate mortgage and then refinance at a lower rate. I think over the last year it was kind of vague as to when might the Fed cut, when might those mortgage rates come lower. People were off the sidelines, but with uh, I've been hearing a lot is people are now beginning to think about okay, you know what maybe. maybe. Maybe I can float a mortgage at you know seven to eight percent for a year and then refinance hopefully at six percent or who knows, maybe five percent, depending upon how quickly rates do move lower over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's really different buying a house at a seven percent mortgage when the last rates, the last couple of months were five or six percent and it's on its way up, versus seeing, oh, you know what, it was eight, now it's down to seven, maybe it's gonna be going down to six, I could do it now and then refinance later you know, there's a couple components to that in my mind. One is, okay, I'm going to refinance later. Great. So then I can go ahead and lower my monthly payment when I'm able to do that. But at the same time, if rates are coming down, housing values might be going Mm -hmm. up at the same time, because you are willing to pay a little bit more for that home. If your monthly payment is a little bit less off of that interest rate, I think you get to a spot too, where there's a no win situation, you know, or at least it feels that way. If you, if you're not already in a house or in one that you really want, where you're just struggling to go, how do I know when to do this? Mm -hmm. And then also Make sometimes right that that's more of a heart matter than it yeah. is a head matter when it comes to housing as well too. That at some point you just got to go hey got to bite the bullet. I've got to go in and I'll figure that out kind of out later.
2: That's right, and it can be driven then by lifestyle changes, mm-hmm. life events, things like that. But uh, let's maybe pivot to some opportunities that we're seeing, uh, and I think related to housing, also related to manufacturing, which has been another point of weakness over the last year or two. I would argue that the whole rolling recession that hit interest rate sensitive housing interest rate sensitive manufacturing capital expenditures that maybe we're getting a little bit more solid footing in those areas some early indicators in the data whether it's for industrial production or even in the gdp numbers as far as that housing making a positive contribution to growth in the fourth quarter that was a pleasant surprise and then we're also seeing in some of the data that new orders for manufactured goods are beginning to increase while inventories are low that sometimes uh, some people call that a bullwhip indicator The rationale behind it is that if the pipeline, so if you have a bunch of new orders and your inventories are low, you're going to have to ramp up production and actually have that acceleration. And so perhaps we could see that. And maybe from an economic perspective, that's a bit of an opportunity. Uh, China is also maybe an area, as far as an opportunity, that uh, government is been doing so many little drips and drabs of stimulus, now it seems like they're getting a bit more serious about it. The reports are that they have prepared about a $270 billion fund in order to help Prop up the equity market. So basically all these state-owned enterprises, they have these offshore accounts and they're basically trying to consolidate them to provide some support, some buying support for domestic equities over there. The People's Bank of China, they came out and announced that they're going to be cutting reserve requirements for banks by about half a percentage point. So that's a form of monetary stimulus. They are also setting up a special entity in order to help finance technology and green spending in the economy. So it seems like uh, they recognize that their economy has really been lackluster as far as the recovery. And as a result, they're getting a bit more serious about trying to stoke the flames there. So from an opportunity perspective, who knows? You know, I mean, maybe decent growth. We could have another pretty decent year in the United States with manufacturing and housing recovering. And then also China, if they can uh, turn their ship around.
1: Yeah. And China's really the one area or the biggest area of the market that has not reclaimed all-time highs. You know, we're, We were now at a stretch here over the last week or so where the S&P has hit a few new highs in a row. We're still not there with the Russell 2000 or small cap companies. They still have a room to go to get up that, I think, another 15, 20% to get back to that all-time high. But China's down 40, 50%. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really far off. And again, you hear it kind of all the time that from an investing standpoint, that's the one place where people don't like buying things on sale. You go to a store, you see something's discounted by 25 or 40 percent, you're much more likely to buy that than the full price item that's right next to it. But in the markets, people are so afraid of situations like that that they generally don't jump in or dive mm-hmm. into it. And I think you kind of want to take a measured approach into those anyways, right? There's still a lot of risk there. Yeah. Just because it's down 40% 50% doesn't mean it can't go down any lower. But certainly with opportunity that you might see from heavier government involvement there, stimulated measures to go through, um, You know, we don't know when that will take a hold or when that will start to work. And obviously we know in more of a free market society that's not necessarily always the main driver of, of equity prices. But it's certainly an area that there is potential... To, to start dipping your toe in. Riding that appreciation back to those all-time highs, but it might be a very long time before mm-hmm. you get to that. That is a pretty big drop.
2: Yeah, that's one of the big challenges. Is that a lot of people have said that China is uninvestable. I disagree. I mean, I think you can always try to find some opportunity. Maybe it's just the way in which you do it, and also your time frame as well. And you're absolutely right. I mean, China does represent some rather unique risks as far as the government involvement in enterprises and how they can change rules on a dime. And uh, you know that definitely does. Present a risk, but as Todd Voigt, our chief investment strategist, has oftentimes reminded us is that, you know, that's also sometimes when everybody's saying that it's uninvestable, that's when you want to look for the investment opportunities. You don't have to spring on it, right, jump on Mm -hmm. it, but it is maybe the time to start
1: looking. Just to keep in mind, too, when you think of an entire world stock market, China's roughly about 3% of that all-country world index, so it doesn't have to be a gigantic part of your portfolio. Oftentimes, if you find a good emerging markets manager, you're going to be able to use them to make some of those decisions for you where you don't have to go all in on China yourself, but allow somebody who really has kind of the boots on the ground that has a really good understanding there, make some of those decisions on when to overweight or underweight, but gaining some exposure there, you know, certainly looks like an opportunity. Sure. Yeah. And that does, I think,
2: also translate into maybe some of the opportunities in the U.S. market as well about the relative valuations, possibility of relative performance. Obviously, we would like absolute performance in terms of, you know, having things go, up. But As the market continues to wrestle with the Fed in terms of when will the first rate cut be, how much will they cut rates, you could probably anticipate some volatility. And so if you do get some pullbacks for the broader market, sometimes it's a matter of, okay, what goes down less than the broader market? So looking for those relative value opportunities as well. Matt, did you want to talk a little bit about where maybe we're seeing some of those relative value opportunities here stateside?
1: We certainly have covered this in the past is on the energy side of things. A lot of that does relate to what economic strength and the direction that we're moving from that standpoint. If we're starting to slow down, generally energy usage goes down as well too. You see things like crude oil start to go down in price and that hurts a lot of those energy companies. We've had a little bit of a rebound in price over the last month or so. Uh, Crude oil was up about $10 or so a barrel. That certainly helps all those companies out because they're selling it at a little bit of a higher price now, but their price to necessarily get it out of the ground doesn't really change that much off of that. So you see some benefits there. you know, A lot of those energy type companies over the last few years have been very shareholder friendly. um, And due to that, they score well in a lot of the research that we do. High levels of free cash flow, high levels of dividend payments that they're sending out, share buybacks. Um, So there's a lot of benefits there, especially when we're thinking to be a little bit more on the value side of the equation at different times. You're going to find a lot of stocks that meet that. One thing to kind of watch out for is we are starting to see some more M&A activity there, which happens when they have a lot of cash on their balance sheet that's there. We do want to watch out because, that does get them in trouble from time to time where they start to see higher oil prices, use some of that cash to buy another company that they think might be mismanaged or might have resources that they want to use but ultimately if oil prices go down and they had spent their cash they don't have that buffer anymore and maybe they have a vehicle that's not as beneficial to their balance sheet as they thought it might be
2: yeah and it's fascinating to see the extent to which you actually get some of the bidding wars taking place and so maybe they overpay for some of those you probably want to be the one being acquired as opposed to the one doing the acquiring at least as far as what you have in your portfolio so look Looking down capitalization might make uh, quite a bit of sense. Now, in terms of some of the threats, when I'm thinking about some of the economic threats out there, there's the typical geopolitical stuff. I mean, that's always there. But in terms of what I think could be maybe a good thing to think about is the Fed being a little bit late to the game. I mean, I and we believe that the Fed is going to stick a soft landing probably they don't need to cut. We've got good economic growth. Uh, Maybe it's going to slow. You're going to have slightly lower inflation trending towards the Fed's target. And so they can wait until maybe let's say June before they need to cut. They're probably going to want to take a baby step to a cut by tapering their quantitative tightening first. But that does raise the threat about what if they are too late to the game to start cutting, if we do suddenly see a more dramatic deterioration in the labor markets or if there's some additional uh, you know slowdown in service sector spending that we weren't really anticipating. And so I think that's one of the bigger threats is the extent to which does the Fed have the blinders on to some data that might suggest that they should cut sooner rather than later. I mean, right now, it seems like they could wait because there's no rush. But you know, of course, we could be wrong about that. And so that does, I think, is one of the things to really keep an eye on. What do you think, though, in terms of market threats, anything related to if the Fed is late to cutting, or if we do see that more dramatic slowing about any sort of threats to the markets?
1: Yeah. One of the biggest areas, I think, from a portfolio standpoint is the role of fixed income with that portfolio and how much of an impact the Fed messaging, Fed action takes on the fixed income side. You know, you think just even just a couple of years ago, fixed income was that boring part of the portfolio. What everybody had thought for a long time that, hey, rates are on a general direction down or they're staying low. It was very, very boring. We see, you know, basically three years of a negative bond market. And until the rally late last year, in terms of rates coming down and your bond prices going up, we had quite the movement in the in the fourth quarter. But now you're at the spot where it's just volatility of rates. And Blaine Disroot on our side talks about this a lot that we might just see. It, we, us just range bound, going higher, going lower, going higher, going lower, all within a certain area. And the need for proactive management mm-hmm. and duration management, the portfolio is going to be critical there. So threat of a- additional volatility in a portfolio in the area that you think should be at least safe or somewhat muted. But that standard deviation of the fixed income, especially long dated bonds, is, is approaching equity like you yep. know volatility in different areas. So having that active management really is kind of an opportunity off of that threat. Right? You start to see rates going up to 415, 4 and a quarter on the 10 year areas to add duration. Goes back down to 4, 375, chance to cut duration. And kind of just moving back and forth on there where you're able to place some of those smaller moves in an area that you don't generally believe in active portfolio management around fixed income, but certainly provide some opportunity for that. Headline strength this week? Almost
2: perfect economic data in terms of growth and the inflation numbers.
1: Headline weakness hypersensitive to different areas within the market especially those that are more rate sensitive if you're ever camping and
2: you're chased by a bear you don't have to outrun the bear you just have to outrun your (laughs) fellow campers right (laughs) and so i think the big opportunity even if we do get some sort of pullback it's still
1: relative value opportunities out there headline threat breaking bad forecasts the market pricing those aggressive rate cuts and whether or not we get them and at what timeline
0: Matt Moore is the investment team manager, a man who was not asked about Spiro Agnew because he's a relative child. (laughs) (laughs) And me, I'm the old guy shopping for a casket. Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, thanks for joining us. Thank you.